Well, as we begin this month of October, as I shared with you earlier, I have a desire to look at the men and the events that led to the Protestant Reformation that was on October the 31st, 1517. So to do that, we must understand what the pre-reformers and the reformers were up against, mainly the Roman Catholic Church. During this time, the Roman Catholic Church controlled everything, and even at one point in its history, there were two popes. But the reformer that we're going to look at today, which many have dubbed him the grandfather of the Reformation, and that is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, who is called the morning star of the Reformation. And as we look at this, there are a few things that we're going to consider, not just his life and his training, but we're going to look at one of the main teachings that he spoke out against with the Roman Catholic Church. And then we're going to look at Scripture for the correct understanding of that one particular area. During John's life, he would live to see the reign of eight different popes. Rome basically held authority over the lives of the people. Those who were living in the continent of Europe as well as in the British Isles. The papacy controlled both the church and the state. There was no separation. And that meant, at times, there would be conflict. And John Wycliffe was no stranger to conflict, and even at one point he spoke out against the papacy and the Catholic Church, and what he spoke out against them caused him to be in favor for something that the government was doing. This brought him in favor with the government, but it didn't help him with the church. And as far as their involvement in the lives of the people, this basically meant that they did not have any type of personal liberty because of that dominance in their life. It's estimated that the clergy owned almost half of the estate of the kingdom. Therefore, they did not see any need for a freedom of choice for the common man. How would you like to live during a time when you couldn't say anything against the king or anything against the church and whatever the church said you had to do? And you had no way to check out their authority, especially with the Bible, because the Bible was not in the language of the people. It was in the language of the clergy, the learned, and that was Latin. But I will tell you that all the pre-reformers as well as the reformers felt the burden of this micromanagement of the people. And the only solution that they saw was to put the Bible in the language of the people. Because if they put the Bible in the language of the people, which would be English, then the people could learn about salvation on their own. They could see it right there in the pages of Scripture. They could learn about Christ in the Scriptures. They could learn about the church and a host of many other things in the Scripture. And they would also provide accountability to the church for the things that they taught. But the church wasn't interested in that. The church was only interested in control, power and control. But the pre-reformers, they would proclaim an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of Christ, and this would not sit well with Rome. Later that they would proclaim, Scripture alone being the authority, that grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone would be their mantra. It would be what they would proclaim. 
There were many problems in the church during this time, and all of them could not be addressed at once. But I will tell you what Wycliffe did address had lasting effects. His writings, his works, his teaching, his influence on both government and the church would be the spark 150 years later with Martin Luther. As we said, this man was the grandfather of the Reformation. He championed the view of salvation, and you hear his views in this statement that he makes. He says, trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. That teaching right there did not sit with Rome. Because Rome was a surrogate Christ. It was Christ plus the Roman Catholic Church. And it's still that today. Many of the practices that they did back then are still practiced today and have never been renounced. Well, I'll tell you that John Wycliffe's teaching and his influence left such an impression on the Roman Catholic Church that 43 years after his death, they dug up his bones and burned them. And then they threw them into the river Swift. And as one writer said, Thus the brook hath conveyed his ashes in Avon, and Avon in Severn, and Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. There's no record of his birth. or much of his early years. He has been given a conventional birth date of 1324, but others suggest it was 1320, some say 1330. So somewhere between 1320 and 1331 would be the year of his birth. No one knows what month or what day. They do know that he was born in Yorkshire, England, during the reign of King Edward III. They also know that he was born 100 years before the printing press, which is very significant because with no ability to print meant that you had to handwrite everything, and all your copies were handwritten. And later he would take the Latin Vulgate, and he would take that and translate that into English, and he would produce the first handwritten Bible. And then they would have to copy it. take them roughly a year to make a copy of that. We also understand that his birth was 100 years before Martin Luther's. He died on December the 31st, 1384, in Ludersworth of a stroke. And someone even said this about him, that he was the greatest of the English reformers. He was, in truth, the first reformer of Christendom. If Luther and Calvin are the fathers of the Reformation, Wycliffe is its grandfather. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about Wycliffe. In this sense, he was a very brilliant man. And even as a young man, he came to Oxford University. And entering Oxford University, the first things that he would end up studying would be the arts, which would include this, grammar, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, rhetoric, logic, philosophy, both natural and metaphysical, medicine, law, and theology. And so maybe you think you had it hard in school. Added to this, he would study the law of optics, the genesis of sleep, as well as national economics. And by the way, all the instruction was given in Latin because that was the language of the church. That was the language of the learned. And the church also controlled the education. Well, 26 years after his arrival, 
He received his doctorate in 1372, and the reason why it took so long is because of the Black Plague. And the Black Plague took well over 25 million people during that time. But he did finally graduate, and the plague did finally stop. But I also want to mention to you that his influence was great. Even though that he was at Oxford, even though that he was under the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, there were people of his day that was highly influential in his life and rooted him in many of these teachings that he took up. For example, one of his greatest influences was Thomas Bradwardine, which was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he taught that salvation was in Christ alone. That's very unconventional when the church didn't teach that. He was also influenced by the writings of Robert Grosseste, who was the Bishop of Lincoln and the English master at Oxford. He had actually wrote about the moral conditions of both the church and the state. He also wrote against the papacy of Rome. And he even stated if Rome did not return to the truth as found in the Holy Scriptures, then she would be the cause of a great schism in the church. And this is exactly the prediction of the coming Reformation in England. Another man who inspired Wycliffe was William of Ockham, who was a theologian at Oxford University. This would also be the place where he would be introduced to free will, which he had already been learning about predestination from from Augustine. He later did reject what William of Ockham had taught and embraced fully the doctrines of grace. There is a four-volume manual on theology called the Sentences, which was the standard textbook during that time, which was a compilation of the teachings of the church fathers and the theologians. So he was highly influenced and because of some of the events that went on during that time, he was really left unharmed. That wouldn't be true of the forerunner that would follow him, John Huss, who was later burned, or William Tyndall, who was strangled and burned. Wycliffe began to see that the teaching and the dogmas of the Church of Rome were at variance with the Word of God. And beloved, that's really where we start everything, is that if we have to take the authority of the Scripture and we have to run it against that grid of understanding. And that's exactly what he did. In 1384, he began to speak out about several of the major Catholic teachings. In fact, this is where I want to spend our time this morning, because one of the doctrines that he spoke out against was transubstantiation. I believe that God has brought us to that subject at this time, and I believe that he orchestrated it this time because you knew as well as I did when I would finish 2 John. I had looked into 3 John, but then the more I thought about October and the Reformation, this is really where my heart was at. And beginning to put things together, it just so happens that talking about transubstantiation would occur on the same day that we would share the Lord's Supper. That is no coincidence. We always share the Lord's Supper at the same time at the same month, or on each different month, but at the same time. And so taking up that subject, I wanted to talk about what they taught, show the problems with it, and then talk about what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper as we move into this time as well. So let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now when we talk about transubstantiation, first of all, we need to define our terms. Transubstantiation literally means a change of substance. A change of substance. The Roman Catholic Church taught... And it also teaches this today, that the whole substance of the bread and the wine is changed into the literal, physical body and blood of Christ during the consecration of the Mass. 
The belief is that the priest performs a prayer. The substance or the essence of the bread and wine is changed at that point into the actual body and blood of Christ, but the elements remain the same. And this word that they chose, which was transubstantiation, it it had a widespread use in the latter part of the 12th century, also in the Lateran Council of 1215. These elements were said to be transubstantiated into the body and the blood of Christ. But the elaboration of the doctrine was not achieved until after the acceptance of the Aristotelian metaphysics that later occurred in the 13th century. And we find them in the teachings of Thomas Aquinas. At the Council of Trent, this doctrine was reaffirmed, but with a minimal of technical philosophical language. It was confirmed as the most apt term to describe conversion. But when Wycliffe, studying Scripture, came to understand what the Bible taught in John 6, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, he rejected transubstantiation altogether. And just so that I haven't lost you, I would say this too, we reject it wholeheartedly as well. Wycliffe argued that Christ was figuratively, not essentially present. But again, the Roman Catholic Church fought back against this. And they were extremely persistent, just as they were in all their teaching. But I want you to see, like even in their latest revision of their catechism of the Catholic Church, that this is what they still affirm. This was in 1994 in their revision. Catechism number 1376 says this, The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body, that He was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God that this Holy Council now declares again, That by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. In Catechism 1333, They say this, at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine, that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit becomes Christ's body and blood. Catechism number 1377 specifies when Christ comes into the Eucharist and how long that He stays. And it says this, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration, and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. Christ is present, whole and entire, in each of the species, and whole and entire in each of their parts, in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. And see, with that understanding, you could see why when Luther finally was doing his first communion and he shook and spilled the wine, how devastated he and the church was. Because they saw that wine as the literal blood of Christ. They saw the bread as the literal body of Christ. And if you're looking at it like that and you're handling the cup and the bread... Your nerves could take over that situation. The Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott, he said the body and the blood of Christ together with his soul and his divinity and therefore the whole Christ are truly present in the Eucharist. Well, that's the view that the church has. 
And there are problems with that view. And I want to point out what the problems are. First of all, the problem, the first problem is that it views the work of Christ as unfinished. It shows that there is a sacrifice of Christ continuing in the Mass. But John 19.30, Jesus said to Telestai, right? Jesus said, it is finished. And so did the writer of Hebrews. A second problem with this view is Christ's human body would have to be omnipresent if this teaching were true. However, Christ's human body is localized in heaven according to Acts 7.56. Remember Stephen when he was being martyred? Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, if the body of Christ is made or changes substance in this, then Acts 7.56 would not be correct. Also, in instituting the supper, Christ used a common figure of speech. We would call it a metaphor. He says, this is my body and this is my blood. This is referring to the bread and the cup. He was physically present, yet distinct from the elements when he referred to them as his body and blood. Now you're in John 6, and I want you to see in John 6 that they use a text here for their proof text. <clears throat> and the text is verses 53 and 54. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The question is, is this transubstantiation? Because here's one of the problems that comes out of this. The Bible forbade drinking blood. We might not have that prohibition today. I love my steak bloody. Well, not that bloody. But during this time, during Old Testament times, you could not eat your steak that way. Leviticus 17 forbade doing this. But the church says this is the meaning. And here's my response. If Jesus is teaching transubstantiation in this verse, then what is he teaching? Cannibalism. And that is forbidden. In Genesis 9.4... In Leviticus 17, 12, he was not talking about physically eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I'm going to prove that. He's using metaphorical language. And in this metaphorical language, he's using this to talk about the necessity of accepting the sacrificial death of Christ. You know, in the New Testament, many times... It will use the term blood as a graphic metonym to speak of the death of Christ on the cross as well as his final sacrifice for sin. For example, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus to be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased how? With his own blood. That is a metonym for death. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That is a metonym for death. Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, and that is a metonym for death. To drink blood... Or to eat meat with blood still in it was, as I said, strictly prohibited in the Old Testament. 
Now let me read the passage, Luke or Leviticus 17.10. And following says, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. Pay attention to this next phrase. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Explains everything right there. So Moses says, Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as the life of all flesh... Its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood, and whoever eats it shall be cut off. So this terminology here, speaking of the atonement, speaking of death, speaking of the life being in the blood does become problematic if you're going to take this passage and you're going to apply this to being the literal body and blood of Jesus. This is mysticism. And there's different forms of it as well. Though Lutheran rejected this, they do believe that some special grace is imparted in the Lord's Supper. And I would actually reject that too. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, let me just point out some things. And this is where context is so helpful. Uh, You can read every book you can find on this. You can read some good comments on this. But the best comment is on what Jesus said. And what the Gospel of John said. If you take, for example, he mentions it in 53 and 54, and even Jesus begins to elaborate on it afterward, where he says in verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Well, that doesn't help, does it? Here's where it helps. He says in verse 63... It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. When you begin to study what he is saying in verses 53 and 54... And you take what the Catholic Church is saying with the change of substance and becoming the literal body and blood of Jesus. And then you take what Jesus spoke in verses 63 and 64 and you put them side by side in comparison. I believe Jesus is telling us exactly what he means. First of all, this is figurative language. But figurative language can have literal meaning. We've got a lot of figurative language in the book of Revelation, don't we? What he is talking about here is appropriating your life and the saving merit of the death of Christ before I just elucidate that further, let me just say that the verbs eat and drink 
They're not present tense verbs. If they were present tense verbs, then the Catholic Church would have a little bit of evidence in their favor. These are aorist tense verbs. And these aorist tense verbs are looking back to a historical account that occurred one time. So this one-time occurrence is talking about this one-time appropriation of Christ at salvation. Not a continual eating and drinking of his body and his blood that is portrayed in the Roman Catholic Mass. He is not literally calling for them to eat his flesh or to drink his blood. Again, I remind you what he says there in verse 63. In focusing in on the words. You know the term that he uses here for words is not the Greek word logos. It's the Greek word rhema. Rhema was a short dagger that was used in hand-to-hand combat. It was used for those up-close moments when you're fighting the enemy. But the logos or the broadsword was something that was four feet long and it was used at a distance. And it was used usually when you were mounted on a horse. And believe me, when they were going after them with that four-foot broadsword, they were going to take their head off, not give them a little tap on the arm, or even to run it through them. But Jesus says right here, the words, the rhema, and by the way, the rhema is used also in Romans 10, where it says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, and the word or the term word there, is the word rhema. say, well, what is that saying? I think they're all saying the same thing. That faith comes from hearing a specific speech about Christ. What is the specific speech? The gospel. What is he giving them here? The gospel, the words that I have spoken to you. Their spirit And their life, but notice this, but there are some of you who do not believe. That's not the only place we see that. Look at verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Go to verse 68. Jesus asked them if they want to go away too at the teaching because some of the disciples did withdraw from this teaching of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, verse 66. So he looks at the twelve and he says, Do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words. The words of eternal life. You have the rhema. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is what is meant by appropriating the life and death of Christ to your life. There is a verse in Luke 9, 23 and 24, and it says this, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This is appropriation. What does God say right there? What does the Lord Jesus say right there? If you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What is he saying here in John 6? If you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But what he is actually saying here is that you have to believe. You have to appropriate the life and the sacrificial death that would be to come of Christ to your life. Again, over and over, he says, believe. These are the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's basically meaning to believe in a saving way. It's clear from verse 29 that this is another way of calling them to believe. 
And what did God require there? Well, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Stated again in verse 35, they are to believe in Christ. So when you begin to study the results that come from eating my flesh and drinking my blood versus believing, guess what? They're the same. They're exactly the same. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death unto life. And here he's saying, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. The promises are the same. The promises for eating his flesh and drinking his blood are the same as they are for believing. His point in verses 53 to 58 was an analogy that has spiritual rather than literal significance. So just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, so also is belief in His sacrificial death on the cross necessary for eternal life. So the only conclusion that you can come to, He's talking about the same thing. He's not literally saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Again, that goes against the Old Testament of cannibalism and eating the blood with the flesh. That was prohibited. Very clear. We just saw that. But again, the results, the promises. What happens when you do this? You have eternal life. What happens when you believe? You have eternal life. Right? So what does the Bible teach then of the Lord's Supper, if that's what that means? There are different views of the Lord's Supper. I mentioned the Lutheran view. We've already heard the Roman Catholic view. There is also called the memorial view. Memorial view says that there is no real presence of Christ in the communion, but only in spiritual fellowship with Christ by those who partake in faith. That was held by many Baptists as well as the Mennonites. That's referred to as the Zingwillian view because of the Swiss reformer who taught this view. But essential to the memorial view is the notion that the bread and the cup are figurative. They are a memorial to the death of Christ. They were actually Anabaptists that came along and rejected the idea of Christ being present in the Lord's Supper any more than He would be present anywhere else. So the memorial view actually emphasizes that the participants demonstrate faith in the death of Christ through this symbolic activity. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. There are five references to the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. You have it in Matthew 26, 17 to 30, Mark 14, 1 to 26, Luke 22, 1 to 20, John 13, and then you have it in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 34. Many scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was probably written before the Gospels. And if that is true, then Paul's account here is first the biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And would actually include direct quotations from the Lord Jesus. It's perfectly consistent with the Gospel accounts, but Paul's revelation most likely came from the Lord directly not through the other apostles. All the gospel accounts tell us that this is the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Passover began the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And the Mosaic law required that the sacrificial lambs for the Passover be selected on the tenth day of the first month, and that the lamb be kept in the household until it was sacrificed on the fourteenth. That's Exodus 12, verses 2 through 6. And during this time, there would be some 250,000 sacrificial lambs slain during a typical Passover in Jesus' day. And because tradition required that no fewer than 10 people or no more than 20 were to eat of one of the lambs, the number of celebrants could have easily exceeded 2 million people. And because the lambs had to be slaughtered within a 24-hour period, an enormous amount of blood poured from the altar site in a very short period of time. Warren Wiersbe says this, Peter and John would have had to secure the bread and the bitter herbs as well as the wine for the feast. They would have had to find a perfect lamb, and then have had the lamb slain in the court of the temple and the blood put on the altar. The lamb would be roasted whole and then the feast would be ready. It was also during this time that we read in Luke 22 where Jesus says, The hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Verse 21. And if you remember... According to verse 23, the disciples began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be that was going to do this. Verse 24 says that there was a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So in the year that Jesus was crucified whether you take it as A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, the 10th of Nisan was the Monday of the Passover week. Therefore, although it's not mentioned in the Gospels, the disciples would have selected a lamb on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Perhaps they kept it at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany because that's where they were staying. Now, when we come to the account that we find in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that Paul is actually correcting a perversion. Some were taking his own supper ahead of others. According to verse 21, one was hungry, another one was drunk. And not only that, but there were divisions in the church. And this uh, did not bring any joy to Paul. He tells us in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. He wasn't commending them in any way. But as I said, he was correcting them. And if you'll notice, in verse 20 and following, he launches into the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another one is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we would judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged." But when we are judged, 
We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Again, it was a problem. It was a big problem. And I would just have to tell you that in these verses, especially verses 20 to 26, that there are purposes given for the Lord's Supper. Why do we do what we do? Is the substance changing or not? Or is this just a memorial? Well, I've already given you that information. But let me point out in verses 20 to 22, one of those purposes. And that is fellowship. Fellowship. In verses 20 to 22, the church came together to eat the love feast. That's mentioned in Jude 12. This love feast was a supper, and that consisted of the evening meal followed by the Lord's Supper or the communion. The love feast was a place of fellowship. This fellowship that occurred with other believers, but the Corinthians were perverting it. And the abuses eventually forced the two to be separated so that there was protection for the communion. So it was a love feast that disappeared altogether. So the first is fellowship. The second is historical. Verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The word receive, paralabano, again used in the aorist tense, it means to take or to receive. This is something that Paul got at one point that came directly from the Lord. This revelation that came to him. And so there was a direct claim right there of the origin that he says about the Lord's Supper coming directly from the Lord, not learning it from the apostles, not learning it from somebody else, not reading about it, but from the Lord Himself. And he says, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread. And this gives us this historical setting which many of the believers may not have known, probably because none of the Gospels was yet written. But when they would do this, let me just give you what an ordinary communion look like because again I remind you it was the Passover meal so it would begin with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first cup of red wine and then he would pass it to the others that were present there were actually four cups of wine that were passed around during the meal after the first cup was drunk bitter herbs were dipped in a fruit sauce and then they were eaten and a message was given on the meaning of the Passover and then the first part of a hymn called the Hallel which means praise or hallelujah, uh, they would sing this. And the Hillel was comprised of Psalms 113 to 118, and the first part sung was usually 113 or 114. And after the second cup was passed, the host would then break and pass around the bread, and then the meal proper, which consisted of a roasted sacrificial lamb, was eaten. Has anybody in here ever taken of a Passover meal? I have. It's, it's, it's very incredible. In fact, I had to uh, consider inviting someone here to do that with us. A Jewish rabbi to come do this with us. Might be better off just getting Keith to come because <laughs> they do it. So you had the second cup passed, and then you had the third cup, which would be passed, and the rest of the Hillel was sung, but they would do this after they would pray. The fourth cup was celebrating the coming kingdom, and they would drink that immediately before they would leave. So it was actually the third cup that Jesus blessed, and it was the third cup that became the cup of the communion. So when you're reading here, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, this was the third cup out of those that I just mentioned to you. And it says in Luke twenty two twenty in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And after he would give some brief words of warning and rebuke and instruction, the meal would conclude with the singing of a hymn. So that's what would take place in this Passover meal, in this celebration of the communion. This was all symbolic. This was all a memorial. This was all done in remembrance of Christ. It brings us to the third purpose. Third purpose was obedience. 
obedience. This was instituted by Jesus. Look at what he says there. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Do this whole thing in remembrance of me. This is a command from the lips of our Lord. Participating in the Lord's Supper is a command. It's not an option. We must have communion on a regular basis, and we do. Some believe we don't have it enough. Early church did it every day. They did it from house to house. We do it once a month. But not to participate in it is disobedience. And disobedience is sin. And I know what, I know what people think on this. They think that in order for me to take of this table, I've got to examine myself. I've got to make sure that I'm doing this in a worthy manner. And I didn't have a good week. I didn't have a good night. I didn't have a good morning. I've engaged in sin. So how could I take up the table in an unworthy manner if I've engaged in sin? It's a good question. But what do you do when you engage in sin? When you come to realize it's sin and you should not have engaged in that, what do you do? You confess it and repent of it, right? When does the Lord forgive you? When's the Lord forgive you? When you confess and repent? Or did He forgive you at the cross? The answer is yes and yes. All of our sins to Jesus on the cross were future. And He paid for every one that you would ever commit. But we do know that there is something that breaks when we sin. Some call it fellowship. I don't like to use that word because the word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia means sharing. It's a communion that you share together with your Lord. That's always there. I'll tell you what happens when you sin is you lose your joy. What did David say in Psalm 51? Restore unto me the what of my salvation? The joy. When he committed that sin with Bathsheba and he covered it up and then he had her husband murdered. He had no joy. He was being disobedient to the Lord. He had committed premeditated murder. And got a hitman to do it. <laughs> So what do you do when you come to the table? Well, yeah, you examine yourself. Make sure that you're not eating in, in an unworthy manner. We're going to talk about what that means. But you do it right then. And I would even back up to say that when you sin, you deal with it right then. You don't wait till that evening or wait till a couple days later or wait till you have the Lord's Supper to finally confess and repent of your sin. You know you don't do that. The new nature in you won't let you hold on to it for that long, right? Well, notice in verse 24, the first thing that he did is that he gave thanks. And this is where we get the word Eucharist. It's the word thanks. So when we're talking about the Eucharist or the Eucharistic, we talk about partaking of the Eucharist, we're not talking about that wafer. We're actually talking about an attitude of thanksgiving. You come to the table with an attitude of thanksgiving. Why do you come with an attitude of thanksgiving? Because what is this table talking about? What is this communion talking about? What does this communion represent? Second thing, it says he took bread and he broke it. The bread represented the exodus. And now it came to represent the body of Jesus. And to the Jew, the mind had represented the entire person, not just the body. 
And the idea of broken, that doesn't appear in any of the better manuscripts or in the most modern translations. Rome frequently did break the legs of those they crucified in order to hasten the death, but we're told that not one of Jesus' legs were broken, 19, uh, John 19.33. So the best reading of this, this is my body, which is for you. And for you really are the most beautiful words that you find in all of Scripture because it tells us He gave His body, His entire incarnate life for us who believe in Him. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beautiful words. And then in verse 25, it says, He took the cup after supper, and the cup had represented the Lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost, and the lentils now came to represent the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for the salvation of the world. And then he says in verse 24 also that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is remembrance. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And he mentions that two times. And for the Hebrew to remember, it meant more than just simply to bring something to mind. It meant to recall that it happened. To truly remember is to go back in one's mind and to recapture as much of the reality and the significance of an event or experience as one possibly can. So to remember Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is to relive with Him His life, His agony, His suffering, His death, as much as is humanly possible. And when we partake of the table, we're not offering a sacrifice again. We're remembering that He offered Himself once for all. One time. And so for us to remember that, and each time we come to the table, it says here we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We come to this table of remembrance, a table of obedience. And last I would say, that would be proclamation. We're proclaiming to one another as we do this, and we're also proclaiming to the world. Now, Paul concludes this by speaking of examining yourself. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine, test himself. In so doing, he is to eat of this bread and drink of the cup. When are you to do this? Immediately. When are you to do this? When you're doing communion. Examination goes on all the time, does it? But when you're participating in the Lord's Supper, you examine yourself before you eat and before you drink. And if you don't do this, verse 30 says, this is the reason why that there were some among you that were weak and that were sick and a number that slept. That's a euphemism for death. They died. That's the ultimate of church discipline. Discipline is mentioned in verse 32. But in your examining yourself, you're judging yourself so that you're not going to be judged. So we can see from this, and we can see from Wycliffe's stand against transubstantiation, that he had a commitment to the authority of the Bible, not the authority of the Pope, and not the authority of the church. Beloved, this is what marks us This is what makes us distinct is the authority of the Word of God from which we get all teaching, from which we learn all about God and all about the Christian life and all about salvation. It's from the Word of God, not from the Pope and not from the Catholic Church and not even from this church. It comes from the Word of God. So that caused him to speak out. It caused him to say that what you're doing is unbiblical and it needs to stop. 
This was just one of the many things that he spoke out against. There are some others, and I do want to focus on them next time. But let me just ask you this question. Do you share in the same commitment that Wycliffe had? Uh, Do you share in that kind of commitment that he had to the Word of God? I mean, are you willing to give your life for the Word of God? When people tell you that they don't want to hear what you have to say, do you just clam up and leave? Do you try to reason with them? Do you proclaim the gospel throughout the week? Or do you mind your own business when you're standing there at the line in the local store? Wycliffe said this, I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. What about you? Pope Gregory XI issued five, they called them five bulls, they are edicts, against Wycliffe. They accused him of 18 counts, and he was actually called the master of errors. But I have to say this, that these were the underlying teachings that 150 years later brought about the Protestant Reformation. And though he lived long after Wycliffe's death, Martin Luther too felt an obligation to recognize the pioneering reforms of John Wycliffe. Luther stood on the shoulders of Huss, and Huss stood on the shoulders of Wycliffe. Huss and Luther and other reformers were indebted to him, and so are we. So are we. I'm thankful for a man like Wycliffe, a man of conviction. We need men of conviction today. Also thankful for John Huss, for his convictions, Martin Luther, William Tyndall, John Calvin. These men were faithful to the Scriptures. And at least if you're going to oppose what they taught, you're going to have to do it with the Scriptures. No wonder... Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation because he brought light in a time when darkness dominated. And he was situated historically between that darkness and that morning light. In 1415, the Council of Constance condemned Wycliffe as a heretic and by their condemnation, but regardless of their condemnation, they couldn't stop him. And they couldn't stop what was coming. This morning star shone brightly against the horizon, signaling the soon coming daylight. And that's what would come with the Reformation. Beloved, October's not about Halloween. That's just a devilish lie. Let's commemorate the Protestant Reformation. And let me just ask this too as we close. Do you know the gospel that men like Wycliffe so vigorously proclaimed? Over 2,000 years ago, a carpenter named Jesus came into this world, born of a virgin, and for one purpose, and Matthew one twenty one tells us what that purpose is, for he will save his people from their sins. Have you been saved from your sins? Because if you've never been saved from your sins, you need to be saved today. Not promised tomorrow, not promised next week, not promised the next few minutes. Today is the day of salvation. And there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said on other occasions, if there was another name, that other name we'd be preaching. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if you've come any other way, you didn't come. It's only in Christ, in Christ alone. So my prayer is, 
If you've never believed and repented from your sin, that you would come to the Lord Jesus who alone paid your penalty for breaking His law. Let's pray. And as we pray, let's prepare ourselves for this time that we have in the Lord's table. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We thank you that you've given us this opportunity for us to study this together today and to look at this great man of God that you used. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would have the same convictions, the same passion for your word. And God, even today, as we partake of the Lord's table, that we would confess any sin that we have committed, that we have not confessed and repented of, and that we would examine ourselves right now as we come to the table. We thank you for all